Good evening. How are you this evening? <laughs> of course, I want to uh, thank um, Liz and Walt for inviting me here. It was a very big surprise. I was very pleased to accept, and I'm very pleased to understand um, all the things that Colorado College is doing, and especially the State of the Rockies project. And I also want to congratulate Colorado College on their amazing commitment to sustainability. Um, according to the National College Sustainability Report Card, Colorado College gets an A for food and recycling. So I'm pretty pleased with that, and I even ate at the dining hall today. Liz was surprised I wanted to go. Um, and that you get a B overall. So I think you guys should give yourselves a big hand. You're doing a good job. By contrast, my school, Kansas State University, received a C overall, which was made more palatable by the fact that the University of Kansas got a C minus, and Wichita State got a D. So clearly, Kansas has a long way to go, and Colorado College is leading by example, and I'm, I'm really pleased to be here. Okay, this college is clearly committed to local foods. I ate some today, apparently. And that leads directly to the topic at hand, the family farm. A new idea, an old idea. Who came up with this idea in the first place? And why does it strike such a deep chord for so many contemporary Americans who are not farmers? Well, I think that much of the answer lies with Thomas Jefferson. And it is buried with him at the foot of his beloved vegetable and flower gardens. So let's talk a little bit about Thomas Jefferson and what he saw as the future of the United States after the Revolution. This is an aerial view of Monticello, looking south. This is one of Jefferson's plantations. He had five. He had over 10,000 acres. Monticello is one of the smallest at only 1,000 acres. Notice the long rectangular gardens just to the west of the formal gardens behind the main house. And if you can't, um, I guess I could use a mouse, but yeah, there's a mouse. Awesome. Okay. So this is the main house of Monticello that we're famous from postcards. And this is the formal garden in the back. And then these are the long vegetable gardens. And then these are um, more, um, more crops. And I want you to notice that this is the, the, the little sidewalk made of brick that goes back to his tomb. So it's all very compact. <clears throat> and you'll notice especially that the Virginia Piedmont Valley is spread out below. Monticello means little mountain. And so Jefferson did literally live on a mountaintop, lord of all that he surveyed. This is another close-up of those vegetable gardens being worked by um, slaves with that small observatory in the background. This, was this photo was taken from a reenactment about Jefferson's Monticello. No, we didn't find hidden photographs of slaves <laughs> from 1800, some amazing new technology. Okay. Notice again that the Piedmont Valley is also visible um, in, the in the hillside, just beyond. So clearly, Jefferson did not personally inhabit anything resembling the historically constructed family farm of old MacDonald fame. So why? What was his contribution to this idea? Well, it was essentially 
the part of Jefferson's vision for an ideal republic. As one of the founding fathers, he had very, very clear ideas about what he wanted the United States to look like. And he had very, very strong feelings about it. And the family farm was foundational to his vision of a new ideal nation, a democratic republic. Jefferson was a champion of local governance. He witnessed firsthand the difficulties of directing policy in both England and then again in revolutionary France and determined that the best way to avoid corruption at high administrative and executive levels was through localized decision making where people knew one another, where, they, where their reputations meant something and their networks of family and kinship were a check on bad behavior. So just as an aside, the anthropologist Bruce Trigger um, from McGill University also was curious about this idea, the idea of just how local do you have to be, how small do you have to be in order for this uh, dynamic to keep people honest, to make an equalized and um, egalitarian place to live. And what he determined through his studies of Algonquin societies was that population size did in fact, did not in fact determine egalitarianism. In fact, it, was, it didn't seem to make any difference at all. And in fact, the basis, what created egalitarianism among Algonquin societies was the basis of their economy. And what he found was that most the most egalitarian societies um, in the world practiced Swidden agriculture in an environment where land was plentiful and dissident members could remove themselves from the community without fear of starvation, putting the onus then on the leadership to provide everyone a living as equitably as possible or face massive outmigration and a loss of authority. This perhaps was the same thing that Jefferson observed. Another of Jefferson's core beliefs was education. Like so many of the other founding fathers and mothers, Jefferson believed in a natural aristocracy based on intelligence. Those who were best suited to be leaders would rise to the top through formal education. This was his experience. This was his primary reason for founding the University of Virginia. This belief in education was connected then in turn to his strong support for science and scientific inquiry through experimentation and observation. Jefferson always throughout his life considered his own scientific inquiries his most important contribution to humanity, not his political career. This was the basis for his only book, Notes on the State of Virginia, and was responsible for his sponsorship of the Corps of Discovery, the exploration of Louisiana territory led by Lewis and Clark. And finally, as we all know, from the Declaration of Independence, which Jefferson wrote with the help of a committee, probably the best committee work ever done in human history, the foundation of each of these blessings of a free republic lay in the social contract. That authority to create and sustain the nation could not come from God, an inherited monarchy, military power, coercion, or ignorance or manipulation, but instead political power would be based on the collective will of an informed citizenry. Now, many of these ideas were not Jefferson's. He borrowed heavily from other philosophers of the Enlightenment, 
But Jefferson made them uniquely his own by applying them to the American experience. For example, the environment of the United States was unlike any other place on the earth, outside of Canada. Okay. <laughs> and it is fundamental to understanding Jefferson's ideal. The United States had a lot of land, it had very little money, and very few people compared to, to Europe, where land had always been the basis of wealth. Jefferson therefore supported unchecked population growth, whether by natural increase or immigration as a means of increasing the national wealth. In Jefferson's view, it was land that set the United States apart and would provide the basis for a truly free society. As a philosopher, he had strong ideas about nature, and he believed that it was orderly, that it was benevolent, and that it was plentiful. Like so many other scientific thinkers of his time, Jefferson was rooted in the belief that nature could not be harmed by people, that it was self-healing, self-sustaining, and self-replicating. He also believed that raw nature was meant to be improved upon for the benefit of people, that it contained the raw materials needed for a happy and prosperous life. This was supported in turn. It's all knitted together in Jefferson's mind. This was supported in turn by Jefferson's strong belief in the value of labor and that the most important commodity that any white person owned was their ability to retain and control their own labor for their own benefit as an incentive for industriousness and a healthy economy. When we put all of these ideas together, limited government, a benevolent nature, a respect for individual labor, and abundance of land, you get the agrarian ideal. Every citizen should have the right to own land, to improve it and prosper. The government's role was to provide that opportunity by dispersal of the public domain in an egalitarian fashion, and then to let an individual initiative take over. This, this was the quintessential definition of liberty for Jefferson. Not freedom from work, or freedom from oppression, or freedom from want. Rather, opportunity, a level playing field for those with the initiative and the ability to shape their own destinies. Jefferson articulated, oh, that's Lewis and Clark, by the way, in case you hadn't seen a slide of him in the last, what, five years where he, they're on every single postcard. Jefferson articulated most of these ideas while still a legislator in Virginia. After he became president, Jefferson acted on his ideas in concrete ways. And the first was to personally authorize the purchase of Louisiana territory from France, which nearly doubled the size of the nation. That's a great... Um, there it is. Better slide. I like it. It looks like a butterfly. <laughs> so we got the 13 colonies, and then we have the purchase, as we call it. Now, the problem for Jefferson was that he had articulated over and over again before becoming president and had criticized the previous presidents, Washington and Adams, that um, they had been profligate in their use of executive authority, and that as president he would never do this. He would never take a bold step that would change the future of the nation without first consulting Congress, and then the first thing he did was to buy the Louisiana Purchase without asking anybody. And the reason that he did that was because, in his opinion, the opportunity to 
increase the size of the nation, and therefore increase the number of opportunities for people to own land was far more important than his short-term abuse of executive power. His next, there you go, now I'm on the right slide. His next decision was to explore the territory for its potential for agriculture to increase the individual number of family farmers, and today we recognize the work of Lewis and Clark and their core of discovery as a fundamental step in the development of the nation. Okay. Finally, boy Jefferson was busy. Finally, based on the Northwest Ordinance of 1787's public land survey system, Jefferson supported the creation of the survey. This was um, led and operated by the creation of the General Land Office in 1812, and then the first surveys were finally conducted in 1820, just four years before Jefferson died. But he got the ball rolling. He pushed it and pushed it all of his time as president and as an ex-president. The survey neatly divided the nation into squares, starting at a central meridian point, the land was then divided on a map into townships and ranges of 36 square miles each. Each township was then divided again into 36 squares of one square mile each. Each of these were then divided again into four quarter sections. These are the classic quarter sections of land of 160 acres that constituted the primary building blocks of land distribution in the United States. Eventually, all of the United States was divided up this way, with the exception of the original 13 colonies and some sections of the southwestern United States that had already been subdivided by the Spanish and Mexican governments. And here's a picture of an actual survey map done in the field by a surveyor. This one happens to be in Wisconsin. I borrowed it from Bill Cronin. <laughs> Notice in this little drawing how the survey remains uniform regardless of the terrain. Rivers, lakes, mountains, sand hills, Indian encampments, it didn't matter. If it was surveyed, it would, could become part of the inventory that could be sold or distributed by the land office. One feature in particular reflected Jefferson's um, other priority of education. In most sections of the survey, section 11 was set aside by the land office as the site for a school. And what Jefferson most hoped to avoid was the concentration of people in cities. He hated the idea of manufacturing. And he saw small family farms based on his 160-acre ideal as the answer, the solution to, the, to avoiding the stench and unhealthiness of urban life. He was not against the Atlantic trade. Instead, he hoped that the American farmer could provide the world with food in exchange for the manufactured goods of Europe, thus leaving Americans leading a comfortable and healthy life without the attendant problems of overpopulation, chronic unemployment, and particularly dependence on others. So who were these mythical people that were supposed to live on these 160-acre farms? Who were these educated yeomen upon whom the entire experiment in, in representative democracy, economic independence, and American values of, an indi of individual initiative rested? 
For Jefferson, of course they were white. Jefferson's relationship to the black slaves who worked his plantations is a tangled subject best left to another speaker in your series. And they weren't Indian either, of course. Like most people in his era, Jefferson felt that Indians were fully human, a step up from his view on blacks. But they were quickly disappearing from view. They were going to become extinct soon, conveniently leaving the continent empty for Euro-American settlement. So what were, the different, what were the features of this special white yeoman farmer of Jefferson's imagination? Number one, he believed they would avoid large-scale commercial monoculture in favor of the more satisfying life of running a diversified farm that was not dependent on others for its basic maintenance. The second feature of this yeoman farmer was that he was morally virtuous and superior to city dwellers. He based this upon his dealings with merchants and bankers and other denizens of the cities and governments that he met in, in Europe and in the northern cities of the new nation. And number three, the yeoman farmer of Jefferson's world would be an educated, land-owning, independent person who would invest in the development of the new nation and would therefore elect people who would support the common wheel, the common good, not their own narrow interests. All of these three things added up to what now historians call agrarian fundamentalism, which we can quickly sum up to one sentence, the moral, social, economic, and political superiority of rural people. I'm sure many of you have seen this quote. Those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, if ever he had a chosen people, whose breasts he has made his peculiar deposit for substantial and genuine virtue. Okay, so then, did it work? Can we transplant that cute Ohio guy with his little shovel? Can we transplant him to Pike's Peak? I don't know. We're going to find out. Oops. There goes my mouse. Okay. When Jefferson left the White House, I was telling Liz today, he got on a horse <laughs> and he rode all the way to Virginia, never stopping, and then just got off the horse, dismounted, and, um, and never left Virginia again. So part of what happened next was just being out of touch. One of Jefferson's dreams, the single family farm, all nearly equal in size, dotting the landscape from coast to coast, um, was something that actually never happened. Accordingly, however, as if it was going to happen, the land office, in order, to acquire, allow, in order to allow men of average means to acquire land, set the price of land in the public domain, those 160 acres, rather low. For most of the 19th century, it was about $1.25 an acre. The problem with this, of course, was twofold. Number one, much to Jefferson's shock, although he didn't really know because he didn't leave Virginia, farmers were not satisfied with his 160 acres of land, 
and purchased lands and farms nearby to expand their holdings immediately upon being able to do so. What Jefferson never expected or dreamed was that farmers in the Piedmont Valley below him wanted exactly what he had. They wanted to live at Monticello. They wanted slaves. They wanted larger land holdings. The other thing that Jefferson did not count on was speculation. At the end of the revolution, land was plentiful and it was cheap. And he, and he expected land values to rise very, very slowly, allowing the nation to grow gradually. He believed it would take another 300 years to fully settle the Louisiana Purchase. Instead, it took less than 30 years for the vast majority of the purchase to be dispersed. And the vast majority of that land went to speculators, both back east or to squatters, people who took up farming or ranching or foresting ahead of the survey. And then when the surveyors did arrive, filed what was called a preemption or a squatter's rights claim based on the improvements that they had already made. But the dream of a nation of small family farms remained strong even long after Jefferson was gone. And the speculation problem was finally addressed in the passage of the Homestead Act of 1862 under another famous president, Abraham Lincoln. The idea of a Homestead Act, which provided free land without a purchase price for anyone who would take up 160 acres of the public domain, live on it for five years, and create certain improvements, had been around a long time. It had been around since Jefferson. But the southern states, concerned that it would prevent the spread of plantation or agriculture, and therefore slavery, had blocked it consistently. It took the secession of the southern states in 1861 to give Congress enough votes to finally act on Jefferson's vision. While the Homestead Act did not stem speculation, it did provide land for thousands of middle-class families, not working-class families, not laboring families, but people of means. Many of them recent immigrants from Europe who, <clears throat> who took up land in the upper Midwest and the Great Plains. And because the act gave the right to homestead to any, quote, head of household, it opened the door for unmarried women to take up farms, especially in the West, as an unintended happy consequence for them. So I'm going to kind of go back and forth between good consequences and bad consequences. One of the most disastrous consequences of Jefferson's ideology in the, in the West, however, was its effect on Indian peoples. Certainly Jefferson was wrong in believing that Indians were becoming extinct, as this photograph of a Brule Lakota camp in South Dakota in the 1870s makes abundantly clear. Congress had tried numerous solutions to the Indian problem, including forced removal, land swaps, reservations, wars, and the like. And by the end of the 19th century, the sense of entitlement that most non-Indians harbored about land ownership as a result of all of the, um, this ideology of the family farm pushed Congress to justify the complete removal of Indian peoples throughout the West first to reservations, then to smaller reserves, and then finally to allot them individual plots of land that were, you guessed, 160 acres apiece. 
The rapidity of the allotment process and the attendant problems of attempting to use the agrarian ideal to civilize native peoples is too big a story again for me to tell you today. But certainly Indian peoples continue to live with the legacy of that policy every day. And as many historians of the West know, one of the other paradoxes of Jefferson's vision was the untenable position it put the federal government in by the early 20th century. On the one hand, the land office was created to be responsible for the orderly transfer of public land into private hands. This was based, again, Jefferson's taking a big blow here. This is based largely on the 18th century notion of an inexhaustible nature of ex and expansive nature. And as it turns out, an erroneous belief that humans were incapable of permanently harmoning the environment. By the early 20th century, public opinion about the federal government's role in the management of the public domain shifted to stewardship of the land held in common for the enjoyment and prosperity of all citizens. And here we have a famous photograph of President Theodore Roosevelt and founder of the Sierra Club, John Muir, on top of a mountain overlooking Yosemite Falls, one of the first national parks. Since then, the dual role of the federal government as both the benefactor of private development and protector of the public domain remains unresolved. And what about that survey idea, that 160 acres apiece for a family farm? Well, one of the other inconsistencies of Jefferson's ideal was that in the well-watered east, which is also predominantly, as you can see from this topographical map, flat, 160 acres could support a family farm. While this ideal was harder to maintain in places like Kansas and Nebraska and the Dakotas and the Great Plains, eastern Colorado, the topography, the deep soils, the richness of the soils when they were initially broken at least made it possible for farmers to give it a try. The American West looked a little different. I had no idea the California Central Valley was this big until I looked up this map. When they rejected the recommendations, when Congress rejected the recommendations of John Wesley Powell, who in his 1878 report on the arid lands of the West, urged Congress to classify land in the West based on watersheds, aridity, topography, and potential resource use, the federal government opted to ignore the physical limits of the western half of the continent, continuing to use the 1787 survey system. This clearly led to numerous problems especially the development of agriculture, especially when people were trying to develop agriculture based on the Jeffersonian ideal of the family farm and some of the adaptations that the West had to make in order to try and deal with the Jeffersonian ideal um, led to a completely new um, legal system of water rights. It led to numerous irrigation um, arrangements, whether they were publicly funded, co-ops, or privately funded. 
It led to major dam projects, all of which were paid for by the federal government. It made all of these things necessary in order to even entertain the idea of agriculture in the West. And therefore, ironically, led farmers into greater and greater dependence on the federal government. A happy one? Again, based on Jefferson's vision of an educated rural populace as the foundation of an ideal republic, each state added to the Union in the West made provisions for the non-religious college that would be open to all. Lands were set aside either to provide a space for a school or to be sold to fund a school. And, many, and we know these state schools, University of Colorado, University of Kansas, all of the ones that start University of, those are the state schools. Okay. The land-grant schools, however, came out of something completely different because training in the science of agriculture simply was not a feature of the state schools. They were classic schools that taught the professions and the classics. And Lincoln's administration, again, was called upon to fill the gap in the passage of the Morrill Land Grant Act. The purpose of the Morrill Act was, quote, to teach such branches of learning as are related to agriculture and the mechanic arts in such manner as the legislatures of the states may respectively prescribe in order to promote the liberal and practical education of the industrial classes in the several pursuits and professions of life. Even though I went to a private school and I'm giving a lecture in a private school, and I loved my school. It is impossible to overstate the impact of the land-grant system in the maturation of the United States in the 20th century, and even now. The land-grant public school system of the United States is the educational system most copied by every other nation in the world. It graduates the most people in the nation, and it continues to be a powerhouse of research and innovation. This is Jefferson's ideal at its best. By the way, does anybody know where that is? It's Kansas State. Okay. <laughs> Guys are lousy guessers. Okay. So what about some of these other things, these um, softer, the softer side of Jefferson? What about those good feelings you get about family farms? Well, it turns out those stuck around. They stuck around in big ways. <laughs> and as the 20th century unfolded, reaction against changes that made it more difficult for farmers led to grassroots defiance. One of Jefferson's most lasting legacies turned out to be that the government that governs least governs best. Or is it the other way around? I don't know. It doesn't matter. And for good or for ill, the nation moved into a period of time in the late 20th century in which, well, actually not even the late 20th century, in the 20th century where suspicion of government became prevalent. Suspicion of big government, big business, big industry, and the accumulation of wealth. The populace, the farmers' populist revolts of the 1890s and early 20th century are a primary case in point 
when both farmers and labor rejected both major political parties for their clear and unsavory connections to banking, to business, to transportation and industry over the, um, the common interests of farmers and laborers. In particular, large concentrations of wealth, monopolies, aided by the government, have always made Americans uneasy, even angry. From the Gilded Age railroad barons of the 18th century to the Wall Street investment buyouts of 2009. Certainly farmers have continued that legacy, although in a new form into the 21st century. This photo is from 1977 and it was called Tractorcade. And it was taken appropriately in front of the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C. These were angry Midwestern farmers come to protest the new farm bill. Now, of course, the ultimate irony in the context of Jeffersonian agrarian ideals is the actual existence of a farm bill. Farmers, according to Jefferson, were supposed to be individual enterprise units. They were supposed to be industrious with little or no government assistance. The reality of farming in the 20th century, of course, makes it next to made it next to impossible to survive without subsidies. And you know what? That was Jefferson's fault, too. By linking together the notions of individual enterprise, unlimited resources, and the application of science and technology to farming, Jefferson's vision led to farmers working themselves right out of a job and right out of the mainstream of American politics. Living during a time when 99% of the population was still directly engaged in production agriculture, Jefferson could not have imagined a day when farmers made up less than 1% nationally of the population. It has been decades since a presidential candidate has seriously campaigned for the farm vote. But this does not mean that the ideal of the virtuous family farmer died. Indeed, I can argue that it remains as strongly embedded in the American psyche today as it has ever been. It's easy to find examples of this mythology in the family, of the family farmer in popular culture even now. And I'm thinking lots of older movies, um, The Wizard of Oz, <laughs> The Big Country, um, even that goofy show Green Acres. But at the same, but the same ideas about the support, superiority of rural people and rural life can easily be found in even country music today. And I actually have a sample of that I'm going to play at the end. Which leads me to the most surprising legacy of Jefferson's agrarian vision. That of the return of the small but beautiful movement in food production that has been around for a long time, but which is now definitely getting a lot more attention. Michelle Mercer of your local NPR station. Is Michelle here? Okay. She asked me if there is still a place for Jefferson's agrarian vision in America, and I said no and yes. No, the nation is never going to revert to the fundamental 
the agricultural economy that Jefferson envisioned. We know now that the resources of the nation are not inexhaustible. We understand that the earth can only care for so many people. And we certainly understand better than Jefferson did that we live in a global economy of internationally owned corporations who have next to no investment in the places that grow our food, provide our, our air, our water, or even care about the places that we live in, how they look. Organic farming didn't exist in Jefferson's day because synthetic agriculture didn't exist in Jefferson's day. But I am fully convinced that if someone had given Jefferson a spray bottle filled with a chemical that would control the Hessian fly that plagued him and his wheat crop for 30 years, he would have accepted it with glee. On the other hand, the organic and local foods movement owe at least some of their appeal to Jefferson's myth of the family farm, of back to the land movements, and of the value, both moral and spiritual, of laboring in the earth. Jefferson firmly believed that the greatest service which can be rendered any country is to add a useful plant to its culture. Perhaps it is not the useful plant that we need or want but the usable pathway to our food, reconnecting us to the people and communities that support and sustain us at its most basic level. Okay. I think I messed it up. <laughs> I knew I would. been looking for a big change, just a little bit more space. You've been waiting on some big hearted John Wayne to pick you up and just right away. Welcome to the wild, wild west. Let your heart run like an outlaw, right into a new sunset. Thank you very much. Okay, questions. Let's see if we can. Hey, Liz, do you want to turn this off? <laughs> <laughs> well, I can turn the whole thing. Got time thing. for some questions. Either side wants to start. Not promising to have any answers. You told them everything they needed to know. <laughs> <coughs> yes. Right here, Mike. Okay, in the myth of the small farm and the nice idealism and the reality of ever more people and the need to produce food, uh, is there any kind of a compromise solution? I don't know. I actually, I, I can't, I mean, one of the things that even Michael Pollan points out is it's not, it's not possible for the United States to sustain itself on local foods. It's, it's simply not possible. When I talk about a usable pathway, I'm, I'm, only, I'm thinking about multiple places that we can go. And I think the usable pathway um, is, 
we haven't forged it yet. I think we've started in those in the right direction in terms of being aware of where our food comes from. I think that's the major step in helping people understand where their food comes from, what they put into their bodies, and what the consequences are. And I think as, as people become more and more aware of that, and I think they are becoming more aware of that, when you get Walmart putting in an organic section of the grocery store, you know you've won some sort of battle. Um, but I think that we're obviously um, monoculture, production agriculture is going to have to make some major, major changes. I was just telling Liz, no, I, was, I don't know who I was telling, that um, might have been Liz, I'll just make her make it up, um, that Monsanto has decided to let the patent on Roundup Ready beans expire. And to, and re, and up to, yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> and what that means is that up until recently, if you used up Roundup Ready beans or they could, or they found Roundup Ready beans in your field, they could take you to court. And they were taking small farmers to court left and right and running them right out of business. And um, the fact that they're letting that patent expire is enormous because what that allows is it allows for farmers now to save seed again. Up to now, they, if they took any, if, even if your neighbor took on those seeds and they drifted into your field, you could be prosecuted if you saved your seed. So. Right here. Oh, uh, just make a relevant comment. I, I read an interesting tweet, <coughs> tweet, tweet today that said sustainable agriculture um, can sustain humanity, but not civilization. Okay. <laughs> yes. yes. The uh, reason that Monsanto might have uh, let that text last Yes, and at first, um, all the farmers who were on the um, the Generation 1 Roundup Ready Beans thought they were going to have to sign contracts for Generation 2. Apparently, they're not going to have to. What do you uh, feel about crop diversity in light of uh, genetics and stuff like that? Crop diversity. <laughs> um, well, obviously, a lot of the land-grant schools, uh, I'll, just be, I'll just cuss them out right now. A lot of the land grant schools were um, implicit in the direction that we find ourselves in right now. And especially the consolidation of land and um, high-tech agriculture that became so capital intensive that people could not become farmers anymore. You either had to marry it or bury it to get a farm. You guys haven't heard that term before? It was the only way to get a farm. And then bury your parents or marry the daughter. And um, Production agriculture essentially got that way because of the help of the land-grant schools. Now what we're seeing is a huge shift in those land-grant schools to including new faculty that have new emphasis on local foods, sustainable foods, and we're seeing more and more of that happening. I think it's happening too slowly, and I think people like Wes Jackson of the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas, which is just near in my back door, um, He's actually pushing things much faster and harder than the land-grant schools. Anybody here familiar with Wes Jackson's work? Oh, great. Fantastic. Well, what he's trying to do is essentially he's trying to grow um, grass that's seed-producing like wheat and, and other things like that in polyculture as perennials. And the first thing I said, I said, Wes, how the heck do you harvest that? And he said, centrifuges. <laughs> 
So apparently they're created, they've already got prototypes for combines that will, that will collect everything at once. Maybe six or seven different kinds of seed and by their weight and density they will be separated in the machine itself and it's like wow, that's awesome. And no planting. Sustaining Monsanto. See the program on the government's website on the Commission of Agriculture's website. I'm just wondering if anybody at the state level is aware of the state of the Rockies and is aware that you all have done all this wonderful work about agriculture. And if maybe they might have invited you all, but you were too busy to go. The saying goes that it's 60 miles from Colorado Springs to Denver and 300 miles from Denver to Colorado Springs. No, but the, but the question does speak to um, a real political reality, is that the large concentrations of wealth in agriculture, which Jefferson would have been appalled by, are, do have political repercussions. And the Farm Bureau and the, the Kansas Cattlemen's Association are lobby, heavy, heavy lobbyists for the status quo. Um, do you think that the, the mythological power of the family farm has given the local foods movement um, in the U.S. more momentum compared to local food movements abroad? No, but it's given them cowboy hats, chew, and boots. I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not familiar with um, with European agriculture outside of um, Germany. Um, but I think theirs comes from a very, very different history that is not bogged down by this mythology, essentially, that is basically what I consider a costume now. Um, I think that theirs comes out of a very different tradition. And they're way ahead of us. Several more questions, and then we have refreshments. Yes. What uh, market uh, trends or legislative trends are we aware of that are going to Oh, my. <laughs> I have not seen the new farm bill. Um, I read it every year, but I was told something very interesting about the farm bill. That when the Republicans are in power, the farm bill is written by the Farm Bureau. And when the Democrats are in power, the farm bill is written by the Farmers Union. Well, they've only had one year. So um, the president of the Kansas Farmers Union is a guy named Don Teske. And I asked him recently, I said, are we going to see a new farm bill? And he said, oh, yes, ma'am. I said, can you tell me? He goes, oh, no, ma'am. <laughs> so apparently it's deep in committee, and he can't tell me. I do not, I do not know what will be in there. But I think the main, the main pieces of the farm bill that are in there will remain. I think they will, they think they will continue to be subsidies. For the, for the primary um, green groups that have always been subsidized, I think there will continue to be loans at low cost for production agriculture and for uh, stock raising. I don't know what's going to happen to CRP. It was being eliminated. I think it may come back. 
which would be great. But I think with the big part in there that I think is going to be different is I think there's going to be a shift in rewarding states for using local foods in the national lunch program. Most people do not realize that the hot lunch program across the United States is a USDA of agriculture um, creation in order to create a market for production agriculture's excesses. So hopefully there'll be some incentive for local schools to do something besides, um, you know, the big semi-truck that pulls up in the back of the school. One last question. Anybody like to? Yes. I'm just curious how you got interested in this topic. <laughs> they asked me. <laughs> no, I'm an agricultural historian by training and an environmental historian, and you put the two together and you end up looking at the, the history of sustainability in agriculture over time. So that's, that's how I got interested in it. But I, my, major, my, um, my primary field is North American Indians, and so I look at agriculture among North American Indians, and so basically the intersection of race and agriculture. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for coming tonight and for those of you who've come to several of the talks this year. We only half jokingly say if every year we did food topics, we could fill the room. So I can't tell you what the topic is next year, but there will be some monthly speakers, and we hope you'll join us.